Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you guys to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And I'm going to be reading from verse 1, actually, through verse 9. Peter writes, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of defense. Of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And here, verse 9 and 10 are, is our text. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What I've entitled this sermon, this, uh, this, I'm tempted to say this morning, this evening, is a change that leads to proclamation. And I've done so because there's so much in this passage that is markedly different from the way the people used to live and the way they are now. Throughout these verses, there is just so much that is marked by contrast. And from here, Peter goes on to discuss the results of that drastic change. So what I've done is I've broken the sermon down into two simple points. The first point is the change. And this will be followed by the second point called the proclamation. The change and the proclamation. And in the final few minutes that we have together we'll go over some applications to ourselves. So, first, the change. This letter was written to serve as an encouragement to Jews who had been scattered throughout the Roman world. He writes in the beginning to the elect exiles of the dispersion of Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia. These Jews had no home. They were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And even though they lived in their current cities and districts, they had no geographical home. There was no place for them. Canaan, the land that the Lord had promised to his people, was now overtaken by a world power. Occupied, it was, and God's people had been driven from their homes. Canaan was the land flowing with milk and honey that the Lord had promised to his people. In other words, this was the place where the Lord had geographically settled His people and He blessed them. It would be here that the Lord would display His glory through His people to a watching world. 
It was also here that the temple of the Lord was built, and the glory of the Lord would come down and fill the temple. It would fill the temple so that God's people would be filled with wonder and with fear. And it was God's people who would celebrate the deep and profound involvement of a living God as He cared for them, as He carried them in the same way that a father carries a son, and He nurtures them in the same way that a mother nurtures her children. So that all other nations who served their idols and their gods would look on and be filled with wonder. It was the same God who said to his people, You shall not have any other gods before me, and do not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. He said that in Deuteronomy 5, 7 and 8. And why was the Lord jealous? We read that and we wonder, why is the Lord jealous? Well, it was because the Lord who made them and chose them to be His did not want them to belong to anything else or anyone else or any other God. Even in all this amazing instruction and display of God's majesty, we know, if we read our Bibles, that there were still some who didn't believe at all. Even in the midst of this congregation, There were still some who saw with their own eyes, they heard with their own ears, and they still did not believe. Even though the Lord had distinguished this group of people from all the other nations of the people on the earth, there were still some who did not believe and still rebelled. And then God disciplined them. He caused them to lose what He had given them and made them to serve other nations who did not acknowledge the Lord. Nations like Assyria and Babylon. So, I'm not starting this way in order to give you a history lesson. But I do want to go ahead and frame the intensity of what Peter is saying by giving you a backdrop of what's going on. He's writing to exiles. People who have no home. And so, here in verse 9 and verse 10, Three times in this verse, in these verses, Peter uses the word, but you. He says, but you, in verse 9, are a chosen race. In verse 10, he says, but now you are God's people. And then he says again at the end, but now you have received mercy. And Jesus uses this word in order to, uh, Peter uses this word in order to indicate a 180 degree change from, when, from where they had been to where they are now. Even though they were biologically Jewish, Peter says to them that at one time they were not a people. So the question that we have to ask ourselves when we're we're reading through this is, how can this be? These are biologically Jewish people. How is it possible that they were brought up and raised in Jewish society and custom, and yet they were not God's people? They were raised in the covenants. These were men, women, and children who were brought up and raised in the covenant, and yet Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3, that at one time they needed to be born again. 
Peter also says that at one point they were conformed to the passions of their former customs and naturally people who were given over to maliciousness, deceitfulness, being hypocrites, envious and slanderous. And they were conformed to these lifestyles in chapter 1 verse 14 and chapter 2 verse 1. So these people who were born into the covenants, this is what their lives look like. And Peter at some point says, you needed to be born again. You were born again. And even the best of them could be categorized this way. If anyone took a closer look at their hearts, this is what they would find, even in the saintliest of them all. Peter goes on to say that they needed to be ransomed from their feudal ways. Everything that they went through, everything that they went through, the sojourning in Abraham, to the exodus, to the slavery that they underwent in Egypt, to eventually the promised land and the wars that they fought and then eventually into even more slavery. These were all visible indications of something deeper that needed to be remedied. All of these, all of these were, were clear, picture-perfect indications of something that needed remedying. There was a problem that needed to be fixed. Even though the Lord had given them the law, rule-keeping would not fix the issue. And it was throughout history that the Lord would send His prophets to continue to confront this issue, which we know as sin. This was the main issue that needed to be dealt with. The deep and profound power of sin had entered into the world through one man, his name was Adam, and had penetrated far deeper than any leprosy or any disease. And it was sin that killed off every single man, woman, and child that it touched. It was sin that separated man from God. It was sin that the Bible says caused men to turn against God so that when we read Genesis 6, Moses says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we get to a book like Jeremiah, where Jeremiah agrees with this and says, the Lord says to Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So Peter says, once you were not a people. Peter says, once you were not a people, biologically Jewish. You were not God's people. And the main issue that needed to be dealt with here had been dealt with with these people. And it was the issue of sin. And so sin is a matter of the heart. It's not the things that you do so much as it is the person that you are. This is why when we read in Luke chapter 5 that when a paralyzed man is being let down through the tiles of a roof, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are not, oh, they made a hole in the roof. The first words out of his mouth were, man, your sins are forgiven. And then you have the Pharisees and the religious leaders saying, who is this that says he can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins except God alone? Jesus rightly responds, Listen to what Luke says about Jesus. 
Jesus says, why do you question in your hearts? This was a heart issue. And Jesus dealt directly with the heart. And so some of you might be sitting here this evening, listening to this and saying to yourselves, well, that is right that Jesus dealt with the Pharisees like that. I'm glad he did. But I say to you this evening, and so does Peter, Jesus is looking directly at our hearts and he's asking the very same question. Why do you question in your hearts? Why are we questioning in our hearts? It's one thing to ask a question and it's another thing to question the Lord. We can ask all the questions if we really are curious. But it's another thing to be like the Pharisees and question the Lord as if we are in charge. It was much easier for Jesus to deal with the external condition than with the permanent condition that no one can actually help. So Jesus gets to the root of the matter and as God, he forgives the man's sin and then says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks right over at the man and he says, rise, pick up your stuff and go home. And the man gets up and what does Luke say? And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Just like this paralyzed man, so were the people to whom Peter had been writing. These exiles, these people who had been, who had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, they were paralyzed in their sins before God, helpless, unable to set themselves right before a holy God. And tonight there are some of you sitting here in this room listening to my voice who are unable to set yourselves right before a holy God. There's nothing that you can do. You wear just like this paralyzed man. Some of you may have been brought up in church. Some may serve in the church and serve faithfully. And some of you may have been around Christians long enough to absorb Christian language and mannerisms. Some of us are polite and welcoming. But the same Jewish people who were polite and welcoming, like us, at one point did not know the Lord. And at one point needed the Lord. They did not belong to the family of God. They did not consider the reality of their own hearts And this is why we see an encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus where Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He gave his life to be a Pharisee. He devoted his life to God. But Jesus tells him very plainly, you must be born again. Crazy. You're 70 years old. Served in the church. Did everything right. And you're not a Christian. The question that I have to you tonight is, are you born again? There was once a preacher who went around preaching and constantly telling people, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. And then someone finally in his congregation got so fed up with him and said, why are you always preaching the same message? And the preacher looked at him, stared at him for a second, said, because you must be born again. You must be born again. 
Once you were not a people, Peter says, at one time they were spiritually unable to do anything about their condition unless someone came who had the power to crush the power of sin and make them right before a holy God. These people were born again to a living hope. There was hope in these people's lives because someone came in. And this person, Peter says, was Jesus Christ. It was through Jesus that they were now a people belonging to God. It's no use talking about salvation and the benefits of salvation if we are unaware of the place that God has brought us out of. The paralyzed man jumped and glorified God because what he could not do, God did. God did it for him. He couldn't make himself walk. He couldn't move his way over to a clinic. God did it for him. And the closer that you and I draw to the Lord, the more aware of our sin we are and the more aware of the grace that God has given to us. Paraphrasing uh, J.C. Ryle, who wrote a book called Holiness, he's um, Bishop of Liverpool. He says, We will never be fully aware of the hideousness of sin until we get to heaven and look back and see what the Lord has done. There's no way. There's no way that we can be fully conscientious of the gravity of our own sin. But we know that the closer that we get to the Lord, the more we will see the grace that God has given to us. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a co-worker. He has a newborn, and he was just sharing with me how he's planning on raising his newborn. And uh, he says, I don't want to give my newborn any instructions on how to live. I want him to decide. I think religion will cripple him. I think religion is the disease that will cause him to, you know, be like everyone else in this world. So I'm going to let him decide. The conversation started with raising his baby and then led to a discussion of these values. And then this led to a conversation regarding the condition of men. We started talking about Christianity. At the end of the conversation, he looked at me and he said, very seriously, he said, so if I'm hearing you correctly, everyone, including you and me, starts out from birth, like my baby, at a disadvantage before God. And I said, absolutely. I once heard a preacher say, how could anyone stand tall and proud when they're standing next to the cross? How? How? There may be some of you who say that I do not struggle with sin. There are others who would say that I don't feel the weight of my own sin. And still, even, even here tonight, there might be some that say, I don't want to think of life in such a negative way. All the time, thinking about sin. That's so negative. Negative Nancy. But the Bible says to examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. It was Peter who spent his life with Jesus that said, depart from me for I am a sinful man when Jesus told him to let his net down. Jesus did a good thing for him, and then Peter says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. 
The closer we get to the light of the Lord, the more aware we are of our own sin. And in His light, all of our scars, our shame, our guilt, sins, both secret and open, are visible. And still the Lord calls you tonight. He still calls you tonight and says, Come. The Lord calls you tonight. If you are listening to my voice, the Lord calls you tonight. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. Can you say this with confidence? That once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Can you truthfully say this tonight? And the fact is, is that the Jews who were not God's people at one point, the very fact that these Jews were not God's people at one point, ought to signal to us that there might be some of us that do not belong to the family of God. And still the Lord calls and says, Come. If we can't say, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then we can't say that we are the Lord's. But if we are, if we can confidently say that, Then we go on to my next point. And the next point is the proclamation. So we've looked at the change. The change for these people is that they were once brought, they were once sinners, and now they have said, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And here, Peter highlights their change that has now led to their proclamation. So we've considered this change. Now we look at the proclamation. And this is something that's been weighing on my heart for the past two or three years. I once heard a Bible study on this verse. And I thought to myself, well, what are those excellencies that Peter talks about? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What are those excellencies. And so very briefly, for the sake of time, I'm just going to go through them all. Um, There's five that I've listed here. And so number one, he says, you are a chosen race. But now you are a chosen race. This is the bringing together of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people from all sorts of backgrounds, skin colors, dialects, and heritages are brought together in the family of God through what Peter calls the imperishable seed called the Word of God. And this completely annihilates racism. This sets it on its head. It brings unity and diversity. And here we see God being a God who causes people to be born again into a sovereign, sovereignly chosen race of individuals made up of millions upon millions of nationalities. It wasn't until recently that I listened to a, a biography on John Patton, the missionary to cannibals. And I thought to myself, Do I have any category in my brain for me singing side by side with someone in heaven who used to eat people? Well, we don't go to work and encounter people that eat other people. But do we have any category for that in our brains? 
You are a chosen race. The excellency of God seen here is His eternal nature and His desire for unity in diversity. The second is a royal priesthood. And the priests were meant to mediate. They were meant to mediate the presence of God to people. They were meant to go and atone for sins through sacrifices. The closest category that we have to priesthood is Roman Catholicism where we go and we confess to a priest. But in the Bible, the priests were always to come before the Lord offering right sacrifices. And this was all done for sin. God required the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus comes and gives us His life so that He, not the priests, becomes the mediator between God and men. We no longer need to go to a priest to confess our sins. We have Jesus, who is our high priest. And from there, we are called a priesthood. Not just a priesthood, but a royal priesthood. It's God who gives us our dignity. This royal priesthood we belong to reflects the excellency of God's royalty and His ability to save His people through the mediation of the Son of God. The third is that we are a holy nation. The United States is not our home. Puerto Rico is not our home. The Philippines is not our home. Heaven is our home. And from there, God rules. Jesus Christ said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Under... His authority, we belong to a holy nation, distinct from every other nation in the world. So when we are gathering together, like now, we are coming together as a part, of a, as a piece of God's entire nation, which spans every single age. And here we see the excellency of God's holiness as king and ruler in the lives of His people. The fourth excellency is God's ownership and humility. We were a people for His own possession. Peter says, you are a people for His own possession. God brings you out of darkness and He does, just doesn't bring you out of darkness. He says, you're mine. And He chooses to identify with His people. He gives His people worth and dignity. It's not their careers. It's not their families. It's God who gives His people dignity. And so we see the excellency of God's ownership and humility. And fifth and finally, we see the excellency of God calling His people out of darkness into His marvelous light. Your chosen race, birthed from an eternal God who loves diversity, You are royal priesthood coming to God as a living sacrifice because God Himself became our sacrifice in Jesus Christ. You are a holy nation distinct and set apart for the King of Kings. Jesus Himself is our holy ruler. Number four, you you now belong to God and you are not your own. You don't belong to you. When you wake up in the morning, you don't belong to yourself. Your life has been bought if you say that you are a Christian. Your life has been bought, which means starting from the beginning of your day to the end of your day, you are the Lord's. 
And then you have been brought out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. It was John Newton, the author of that wonderful hymn that says, uh, that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, who once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I used to be. And I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now have received mercy, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Those were five. But God's word is filled with thousands of excellencies. And if you're here as a believer, that's something to smile about. Amen.